Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Michael Gibbs, who is Clinical Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago. He studies the economics of human resources and organizational design. Welcome, Michael. Hey, Gil. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for being in person, sort of. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, our discussion is going into COVID-19 discontinuity. So let me start with one of your recent papers uh, from July. Work from home and productivity, evidence from personal and analytics data on IT professionals. Uh, you, you say that we study productivity before and during the working from home WFH period of the COVID-19 pandemic using personal and analytics data from over 10,000 skilled professionals at a large Asian IT services company. Yeah, I mean, this this is a, a true discontinuity, right? I mean, um, we, we used to sit in our cars, drive for half an hour, go to some some place, sit there for eight hours, come back and sit in the car for another hour because of traffic jam. And then COVID-19 arrives and uh, a lot of people found that that may not be quite um, quite efficient. So so, so what, what did you find from this data? Well, first of all, let me mention that I have two collaborators, Christoph Seamroth and Friedrich Mengel, who are professors at the University of Essex, um, great collaborators. So I want to, I'm very lucky to work with them. Um, um, I've also set a little bit of context about the data, if you don't mind. So we we were working with a company, a large Asian IT services company, I'll say large Asian IT company, um, at the moment, the company's identity can't be revealed. The data are confidential. I expect that at some point they'll let us reveal them. And so I'll be a little vague about even the country they're in. But you can imagine a large IT services company based in an Asian country, um, but you know with global clients, of course. Um, and so we were preparing to do a field experiment with this company, um, which we've been working on for over a year, planning out and designing and negotiating with them. Um, we were ready to launch it. We were going to be studying an intervention with new employees to teach them about social networks and see if they formed stronger networks and if that affected their their career paths. Um, seemed like a great idea at the time. And you know, so we we knew a lot about the data in the company and had negotiated access to the data and had signed non-disclosure agreements and gone through human subjects approval at the university level and so forth. And our ex- great experiment was set to launch March 2020. <laughs> now, unfortunately, no new hires were going to be trained in person. No social networks were going to form in the normal way because at that point, as with almost all of the planet, this company shifted very abruptly in mid-March to almost 100% working from home. 98% of the employees all of a sudden shifted to work from home. So we couldn't do our study. 
but we had the relationship with them and understanding of the data and so forth. And um, in particular, I have a contact there as a former student who's a very senior executive. He's a wonderful guy and um, has been, you know, a great collaborator as well. Um, and so we pivoted and said, OK, let's study um, the effect of this on employees. And we were able to do that by retrospectively collecting data on a set of their employees before COVID because, you know, they had the data in their databases. So we had something like a, a year of data before March 2020. And then we waited a few months and we collected data for the first five months of working from home. So what we could do is compare performance for the same person when they were working under normal conditions and then abruptly after they switched to um, working um, from home. Um, and we have, so that's the first thing. We, so we're studying about 10,000 of their IT professionals. So these are people with college or advanced degrees in something like computer engineering or machine learning or, or you know, they're pretty sophisticated um, engineers mostly, um, doing a lot of knowledge work. Um, they often work in teams. They often work with their clients. They, they um, do a lot of innovation. Um, of various kinds and so forth. And we have very detailed data because the, we had been preparing to work with the company and the company is a very data driven company. It's an IT company for one thing. Um, so we knew characteristics of the employees. We knew their age and their gender and their experience, how long they'd worked in the company, how long they'd worked in their careers. Um, we had a rough idea of where they were in the hierarchy of the company. Um, we knew which team they worked for. So um, and then we had some unusual measures. The first was we had a measure of their productivity. So the company measures their productivity as every company does. They go through a process where the supervisor sets some KPIs for for the employees and they have a primary one um, that they're mostly measured on. And we had access to that, so we knew their performance, and that's measured in a consistent way across all the employees, even with different jobs, because the company, being engineers, scales their performance on a, a percentage per achievement relative to their goal. Can, so can, we, can you say what the, what the metric was? Well, it would be different for each person. It would depend on the nature of the job. So the supervisor is going to set it based on what are the goals I want for them to focus on primarily this year? It might be something related to innovation or implementing some kind of customer contract or you know, so, yeah, and so forth. It's going to vary, but since they're scaling it as percent achievement versus goal, it's comparable across employees. And then we had um, access to two other unusual sources of data from analytics software that they were using. Um, the first is um, they contracted with a company called Sapiens. Sapiens is a company which installs software on company devices, which can be used to track employees work time. OK, so all these employees are working on various computer um, company devices. When they worked from home, they either took a company computer or more likely a laptop with them or they already had one. They, if they're working with a phone, they're using a company phone and so forth. They're not allowed to work out unless it's on a company device. And when they're doing that, the Sapiens software is monitoring when they're working, when they're not working, and so forth. You know, and we could talk about the details of that if you're interested. So we have a measure of how much people are working per day, what hours they're working per day, when are they taking breaks, and so forth. And then the second for a subset was the company um, bought licenses for our research, incidentally, um, for a Microsoft product called Workplace Analytics. And workplace and, and, and they're interested in testing out this um, this um, product anyway. But my, uh, workplace analytics tracks employees. It, it connects to Microsoft Outlook essentially. So it's going to collect data on meetings, how many meetings you have, who are they with, how much time do you spend in those meetings, chats, phone calls, emails and so forth. So it can be used to to study employee communications of various kinds. It could also be used to study social networking. For example, the extent to which I'm communicating with people outside of my organization, such as you. Um, this would be tracked and so forth. 
So we have we have a measure of, of communication collaboration mechanisms, a measure of time used, a measure of productivity, and we know some characteristics of the person, and then we can look at that before COVID and after COVID. Yes, so, so you see here that hours worked increased, including a rise of 18% outside normal business hours, but average output declined slightly, and productivity fell by 8 to 19%. And so Sapien um, software and all the processes that they had in place, if you look at precisely how much time people work, um, if I understand this correctly, Michael, they, they seem to work more, but then they produce less. Is that the way to interpret it? Yes, and I hadn't even answered your first question, but you just summed it up nicely, the answer, so thank you. Um, what we, we found is that people did work more hours per day or more time per day, um, as you said, about 18% on average, and most of that increase was outside of normal working hours. Nine to five, we would think of it as intuitively. So they're working earlier or they're working later. Um, now their performance um, was essentially flat, maybe fell just a slight amount. Performance being the supervisors, the, the measure that they've established with their supervisor, their performance against their goal. So it looks like the employees in this company are working longer to meet their goals, and they are meeting their goals. In that sense, performance did not, was the same. It's just taking longer to do so. Um, and therefore, um, productivity, as we would think of it as economists, you know, performance of output divided by inputs fell by 10 to 20 percent, depending on how you want to measure it. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So um, some of this is very intuitive. So, you know, you say you analyze determinants of changes in productivity. So employees with children at home increased work hours more, but had a larger decline in productivity. I, I can understand that. Um, women had a larger decline in productivity while the uh, while those uh, with uh, lo with longer company tenure fare better. So, yeah, I mean, all of this we know is happening, right? Um, so, 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 what's sort of the overall? Um, I don't want to call it a conjecture, Michael, but what what sort of conclusion that you have? I mean, um, when people go home, they get distracted. Um, uh, when there are children at home, they get more distracted. Uh, women have actually, uh, they have more responsibility at home. Men are pretty useless in general. <laughs> you know, women take care of everything. Um, so we, we sort of know the initial conditions going in there and the data is sort of consistent with it. Um, somewhat, yes, somewhat no. Um, yes, when they when what we found is that if the employees had children at home, and how do we measure that? By the way, we knew the company provides health insurance to its employees, and we know if it provides it for children as well. So that was kind of cool. Um, so if, if the employees had children at home, their productivity fell more than if they didn't have children at home. That's not surprising. However, the effect was not larger for mothers than for fathers. It was about the same. Separately, women had lower, had a larger decline in productivity than men. We're not quite sure why that is. Our speculation is that this is an Asian country where many live in extended families and, you know, grandmother and grandfather are there and so forth. And that in that context and that culture, women are more likely to have to get involved in domestic activities than men are, whether during COVID or not. But that's just speculation. Um, but As you, what, sorry. Uh, so, so sorry, Michael. So, is a general conclusion that productivity declined, productivity fell, eight to nineteen percent is is one of the conclusions that we see from the data. In our study, yeah, it is. Now, there there are a couple of other academic studies that have been done before of working from home, including one during COVID, one not during COVID, and they had found that productivity was higher. For those working from home, so this is in contrast to those prior studies. Yeah, so like the, the cultural control here, as you mentioned, um, 
appears important. Um, what is your speculation if you were to do this in the US? Um, would we find something different? Um, I think we're going to find largely similar patterns. Now, we, I'm not sure about the differences between fathers and mothers or men versus women, but in terms of other kinds of um, patterns, I, I expect we'll find exactly the same thing. So we found that more experienced employees were able to work from home more effectively than those with less experience, and that makes sense. Um, but the main thing that we haven't gotten into yet is how are people spending their time working from home? And there, there's a large increase in the amount of meetings that people attended online, number one. So that's Zooms or Teams. We're on Microsoft Teams right now. In fact, that's what the company also used. Um, large increase, and those meetings were with larger groups. Um, so you're spending more time in meetings. Those meetings tend to be of your whole team. Um, so you can imagine they're just these painfully low productivity coordination meetings. Um, you're spending more time on chats and email um, and phone calls. And the sum of that is um, you're spending less time focused on your work. In fact, we have a measure from Sapiens called focus time, which is the amount of time employees being tracked as doing their work and they're not being interrupted with any kind of communication, email, chat, uh, team meeting or whatever. And focus time fell dramatically, working more time total, but you're working less focus time, concentrating mm -hmm. without, you know, your devices interrupting you in total. And you're spending more time in all these kinds of meetings. And the the focus time is the one variable that is most correlated with productivity, it turns out. And that I think is going to be an important lesson maybe we'll talk about later. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really fascinating thing. So you say an important source of changes in WFH productivity is higher communication coordination costs. Um, I, I wrote a book in 2009, uh, Michael, in which I argued there's no reason uh, for firms to exist anymore. Um, you know, Coase argued, you and I both know well, that the reason for firms to exist is uh, minimizing transaction costs. In a world of internet and nearly zero transaction costs, there are no reason for firms to exist anymore, I argue. Um, I, I thought firms are all going to go away in 10 years, but I was apparently wrong. <laughs> all the companies are still there. Um, and so do you think this, this idea that uh, when you send people home, you become sort of an individual unit uh, in some sense. Um, and, the, and the company has some performance measures, uh, some tracking on you, but you are still sort of uh, responsible for your performance in some ways. Do you think that will accelerate, accelerate toward um, smaller firms in the future? It probably will. I'd like to come back to your, your book um, by the way, your Kosian book, comment about that when we can. But um, I think it probably will because we have we have had this major experiment forced upon us and we have learned a great deal about how to work and collaborate and communicate virtually instead of in person. We've got better at it. So that lowers the costs. It lowers what Coase would call the transactions costs or we called coordination communication costs. And because of that, um, it, it is easier to work with someone um, at more of an arm's length and which pushes you in the direction of they're a supplier, not an employee, or they're, you know, a consultant instead of an employee. We have a temporary working relationship and then they move on and do something else. And then the second part is, is people have experience working from home and many have found that they like it. Um, working from home, I think, reduces it weakens the attachment of the employee to the employer. And that I think is going to lead to smaller firms too. Now that doesn't, that's not costless, but I think we will see some of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I don't know if it's in this paper or the other papers we're going to discuss, um, but I want to get into that a little bit. So um, we are in sort of a status quo society where managers of the firm believe that 
whoever is coming into coming into the office uh, is probably doing better or working better or whatever the case may be. I remember a Yahoo Yahoo CEO um, coming in and saying there is there cannot be any any people outside uh, working from home, and this is Yahoo with an internet company. Um, so. Do, do, are we sort of fighting against sort of a status quo bias of existing managers who say, no, if you don't come into the office, you, you won't be, you, you're not really working hard, are you? It's possible. <laughs> I, you know, I'm an academic. I'm going to say it's possible because we don't have enough evidence yet. You know, we know that there are differences between those who work from home and those who work in the office. And in the case of, my, of the evidence that I'm citing, um, the performance is not just subject, subjectively evaluated by the supervisor. So I don't think that's what's causing our effects. You know, it's not that the supervisors are saying, oh, they're working remotely and therefore I'm downgrading my evaluation of their performance, I think. Um, but it certainly could be in other cases. Evidence from other research, uh, one of the papers I sent you, for example, is that when people work from home, um, their promotion prospects are lower, for example. And that could be related to a status quo bias, as you said, or some other bias that the supervisor has against those they don't see in the office every day. Um, I think that's completely possible and plausible. Another explanation, though, is it is more difficult to supervise that person and to build a constructive working relationship with them. So, you know, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really interesting. I, I think it's in the, I don't know if it's in this paper, the next paper. So this idea that uh, you have a higher probability of getting promoted when you are on site. I mean, we see that in, in all industries. I mean, um, if you don't show up, you know, um, your performances, performance rating, I should say, is going to decline. Um, but I'm not sure if there's any evidence that, you know, I mean, if you look at real performance correlation against performance ratings, and you control for remote versus on site, but we find any any effect there, do we? Any effect of so so suppose you know um, Joe goes to work and Sally stays at home and uh, we look at their output and uh, you know output is reasonably similar but you what you're arguing i think is that joe has a higher chance of getting promoted because managers of joe uh, just feel like joe is doing more work because he shows up at work no i didn't say that you said that <laughs> so what, what we what we do see in the limited data we have so far pretty consistently is if you work from home, the odds you're going to get promoted are significantly lower, anywhere from 20 to 50% lower in a couple of studies I can think of off the top of my head. That's a very big effect. And then the question is why? And you gave one possible explanation, but I, there's another one. So um, as you said, suppose in your thought experiment, the two employees, Joe and Sally, I think you said, have exactly the same quantified performance. But quantified performance isn't total performance. This gets back to this issue of COSIAN. You know, there are many things about workplace, about work, which are intangible. And intangible means difficult to measure. So we have this performance metric in my study, for example. We also have a subjective performance rating, but we're not capturing everything that the employee does, which is intangible because we can't. And that's true with all of these academic studies. So I think what's likely going on in this case is I'm working from home and I'm doing the things that I can do at home that are measurable and, and achieving those results, but I'm not getting coached by my supervisor. I'm not attending meetings and developing social networks that are valuable to my development. You know, I'm not learning from others in the same way I would be if I was on site. I'm not um, interacting with my clients and teammates as well. So I'm doing the nominal things very well, but I'm not developing the relationships. I'm not developing my own human capital. I'm not developing interpersonal skills and leadership skills and communication skills, 
in, as to the extent that I would be if we were in the same room instead of on a Zoom on a Teams meeting. Um, I'm, people are not getting to know who I am because people who know me are communicating with me because we can just set up, we can send an email to each other. But if people don't know me, they're not going to see me, that they're not, not going to meet me. Whereas in a workplace, random interactions occur in my, you know, my presence gets known to a wider audience and I can, you know, I can shine and I can have better opportunities to be recognized by people in higher levels who might want to promote me and so forth. So there are lots and lots of intangibles that are being missed and I, that I think are not just being missed in the data, but being missed by those who are working from home yeah, and their organizations. It's really fascinating, Michael. So is this sort of a principal agent problem in the sense that as a shareholder of the firm, I just want productivity. Um, I don't particularly care where the productivity is coming from. But if the agent I put in place has some heuristics that are not optimized, uh, let's call it status quo heuristics, which basically says if I don't see the guy, he's not developing, he's not creating communication skills, he's not networking. These are all status quo heuristics I cannot really show a positive shareholder value for. If that's true, this is a sort of a principal agent problem, isn't it? There's a principal agent aspect to it, and I'm not a behavioral economist. I'm a neoclassical economist, if you will, so I'm not going to think in terms of heuristics and biases. Um, but I've done a lot of work on, you know, performance evaluation and incentives. And some of my most significant work has been on intangibles. You know, what's the role of subjective performance evaluation? So that is absolutely a principal agent issue. We measure things as best as we can use performance measures, as in this study um, that I did with this company in Asia, but we can't quantify everything. And for that reason, supervisors always use subjective evaluation too. Pretty much literally every job in the economy in, in, has some subjective performance evaluation, either implicitly or explicitly, you know, from the bottom of the organization to the CEO with the board of directors. And the reason for that is because we do want to measure all of your performance, but some of it we have to use judgment to do. And and once you think about it that way, then you start thinking, okay, it's much more it's it's more difficult to do that if I don't see you in the workplace. We don't bump into each other at the water cooler and have random conversations. You can't easily come down the hall to ask me for advice. And and you know just even assessing body language in a meeting that's on Zoom versus in a room it's not the same so that's part of it and then there's another aspect though it's not just about performance organizations are also about investment we're building capital and a lot of that capital is intellectual capital social capital human capital you know we're training people we're developing their skills we're hopefully developing their skills in a way that are well paired with what we're trying to do in our organization. You know, at the University of Chicago, we're trying to develop young professors doing great research. And, you know, same idea in other organizations. Part of that capital is we're trying to develop reputational capital. Part of it is social capital, building networks, um, which, which facilitate um, selling to clients in the future and so forth and so on. And those kinds of intangibles involving interpersonal relationships, I think are also likely to suffer from virtual relations, virtual communications. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so one so thing I think about, Michael, is, um, I mean, this is not in the paper. I want to get your perspective on it. Um, so we are on this artificial intelligence wave, as you know, um, and there are some indications that, you know, we can probably automate away most of the jobs in the world even professional jobs like doctors, I mean, engineers, I would argue, is all, almost, all, almost automated away. Doctors still remain because of biological uncertainty. Um, so if you get to a point that machines are a lot better than humans in most of the jobs, this human capital development idea that agents of the firm have is sort of antiquated in the sense that maybe we don't need humans in the future. So why why do we want to develop them? Well, the future you're describing is is I think further in the future than than many think it is. 
it is true that artificial intelligence has um, finally, per perhaps for the first time in history, made significant progress in the last 10 years. Uh, we've been talking about it for 50 years, but not much has been achieved. But you know, now um, artificial intelligence can do many things. Um, but it, it hasn't, it has not yet automated away every job. There are a lot of jobs that it hasn't automated away. Um, um, labor economists like to talk about the hollowing out effect of, on the labor market of automation. So automation tends to occur for so-called middle skilled jobs, not high skilled jobs as much and not low skilled jobs as much. On the low skill side, there are jobs which are still involve physical tasks, which robots are not yet capable of doing, but also um, interpersonal interactions again, service jobs. You know, interacting with a customer in a restaurant, a robot's not maybe as good at upselling as a waiter or waitress who's been doing the job for five years and knows how to read the and, and engage emotionally with the customer, for example. Um, and then on the high end, there's, uh, you know, doctors, it, tur it turns out doctor, the demand for specialized doctors is increasing with artificial intelligence. A radiologist is a nice example. The reason is we have massive radiology, radiological scans are very, very cheap now. You know, an MRI um, is ridiculously cheap. There used to be one in the whole city of Chicago, I remember a special building for it. Um, so we have lots and lots more scanning that gets done. Lots more data that has to be analyzed. And what we see happening is the, the data are being scanned by artificial intelligence and the artificial intelligence very quickly goes through a large amount of scans and um, identifies anomalies, but human experts are still better than the machines at at um, understand interpreting the anomaly. Probably because um, it requires not just interpreting what the scan is telling you, but understanding the condition of the patient, their demographics, their emotional state. You know, what are they willing to do in terms of, say, back surgery or or something along those lines, and so forth. There's a lot of understanding of the the human that doctors can do and machines can't. And then there's things like leadership and and you know training and teaching, which machines can't do. So there's still many things so far for which humans are much better than machines. Machines are freeing us up to do those things. And then there's a big topic we haven't talked about yet, which is creativity and innovation. So I'm a, I'm a little less worried about that than you are, although it is obviously having very dramatic effects. And if I was in one of those occupations, which is being automated away, I'd be scared. Yeah, I mean, it is tough to predict. Um... So I want to go into another paper that you have, um, uh, your colleagues have, working remotely, selection treatment and the market provision of remote work. You say, uh, why was remote work rare prior to the pandemic? That's a really interesting question mm -hmm. for me. In 2009, I argued all work should be remote, but that was wrong. Uh, one possibility is, is that remote work reduced worker productivity. Another is that attracted, it attracted less productive workers. So, so there are two sort of two different um, hypotheses here. Um, is uh, remote work, does remote work reduce worker productivity? I sort of, my gut feeling is that it's unlikely, but has it attracted less productive workers? Seems like more possible to me. What do you think? Yeah. So the, the paper you're referring to that I sent you is um, by two PhD students uh, in economics at, the, at Harvard University. Uh, really nice paper. So it's Natalia Emanuel and Emma Harrington. Um, so I wanted to give them some, uh, you know, some props for a, a really nice paper that I learned a lot from. Um, so they're studying a, a Fortune 500 company with call centers. So they're working, looking at call center workers. And that I think is going to be important. Very different than the type of employees I, I'm studying in my, you know, I'm studying IT professionals with high cognitive level of work and innovation and teamwork and so forth. They're studying call center workers who work individually, not in teams. They they follow a script. Um, their work is kind of very standardized. So call center workers are a pretty good case where you would expect working from home to work well. And indeed, they find that productivity increased when the company experimented with offering working from home for call center workers, and then when they were forced to do more of it as a result of the pandemic. Okay, 
But they also found, and, and that's consistent with other research on call center workers. Um, so I think what we're going to see is working from home can improve productivity or can be can not harm productivity much in certain occupations, whereas in other occupations it's likely to um, be more problematic. The other thing they found, though, is there, there are significant differences by the, I'll call it the productivity of the person. High performers um, versus low performers. So low performers were more interested in remote work than high, high performers. High performers were less likely to opt for remote work, more likely to choose the option of working at the office. And think about what we were talking about before about promotion opportunities and the ability to to meet more senior people and get you know build your network and you know learn from your colleagues and so forth that's the kind of thing that's going to be of interest to high performers with career ambitions and so what we're seeing in, and that's exactly what they're seeing in their study and i think that's a very important insight and so the challenge for organizations then is if you offer remote work, you may get at what economists call adverse selection, sometimes called the lemons problem by economists. You may end up recruiting lower quality employees because, you know, people definitely like working from home. They're willing to accept lower salary, something like 8% lower salary for the option of working from home sometimes. Um, but lower quality employees are those with less career aspirations or expectations are also more likely to take those jobs. Right. And that means that you may end up hiring lower quality workforce if you shift to a lot of work from home. From home. One of the things you talk about here is, uh, is this also adverse selection issue? And so if remote workers are selecting themselves um, or less quality remote workers or less quality workers are selecting themselves into remote modality. That's a problem, right? That's a problem for management. That's a problem for workers. So, it, so what, what is this going to do to us? Well, it, it's it's a significant cost to remote work. Um, it, certainly to 100% remote work. Um, you know, you, you, you talked of coasts and this is a loss to both sides. It's, it's a Coastian loss and both sides are made worse off by it and need to figure out ways to mitigate this. And I think one of the most likely things is, first of all, you do hybrid. You don't do full working from home. You do partial working from home and partial working from the office. And I think there are many reasons why you would want to do that anyway. And that's what we're going to see companies moving towards, not full working from home in most cases. Second, both firms and people need to learn how to manage these career situations more effectively. So we need to think about how supervisors can supervise and leaders can lead people who are partly remote more effectively. And we will, but it's going to take some learning and then some training, leadership training, supervisor training and so forth. Um, perhaps it's going to take more tools for monitoring and performance evaluation. Um, that work remotely. I'm not sure about that. Um, and then on the people's side, you know, I teach executive MBAs, for example, um, and and younger MBA students. Um, people need to think more about how do I manage my career situation when I'm working from home. I need to be aware of the risks that I face and the costs that I'm going to incur if I don't make a point of sometimes going into work and making sure that I meet the right people and have the useful interactions. Um, and get to know the right people. So understanding I need to develop my social network and why is it valuable and how do I do so, um, for example. And um, I'm going to be perceived differently by my supervisor if I'm not careful. So how do I manage that relationship effectively, not manipulatively, but effectively with my supervisor so that I can get the right help from them, so that they I can get the right credit um, for my work and so forth. And there are related issues. It's not just about that, but you know, we're going to have to figure out how do we make teams work effectively when the teams aren't always together at the same time and so forth. We can work through these things and make some progress, um, but it's going to take some learning and some time. Yeah, I mean, so some people are simply better at it, working remote, I mean. 
uh, and some people are not. Um, so there's a capability issue. There's a desire issue. I, I don't know if you talk about this in the paper, like a matrix, right? So there's a desire issue. Um, you know, for instance, you know, I would put myself in a block that I love working from home. I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and if you have some sort of mismatch between those two things, then you are in a slightly inferior position, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. So using technology, so, I mean, clearly, you know, it used to be three years ago, two years ago that a lot of those uh, sort of face-to-face -face meetings, I remember, you know, sitting in Fortune 100 companies where I used to work, many of these meetings were completely useless. Uh, you know, it's a dozen people sitting around a table looking at each other for an hour. And the only thing we do at the end of the meeting is to have to make a decision to have another meeting. And uh, for me, that is a complete waste of everybody's time. If you put people in sort of in a remote arena, uh, I had a, a talking to a client this morning that, you know, he, he tells me that they created a virtual office. So this is a law firm that has, you know, 30 uh, different offices around the country, but they create a virtual office and that is uh, the fastest growing office in the system. <laughs> um, because anybody can join that office and, and uh, do whatever they want to do. Um, and so there's a competence issue and then there is sort of a cultural or I don't know what the right term is, right? So some people are really adept at it and some people are not. So, 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 so what, do we have any idea from the sort of the cross-sectional data how this falls out? Not that I'm aware of. Um, not that I've seen in the literature, no. I think you're right, though. You know, um, I'm a geek. I'm a triple University of Chicago alumnus, and I teach here now. It's just, you know, um, I'm an introvert, and in some sense, I would thrive in work from home because I wouldn't have to talk to anyone. And, you know, I, I teach MBA students, and to me, they seem like aliens because MBAs have this natural ability to interact with each other. They've got this salesman shtick. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all. My wife, who's also an economist, and I often talk, you know, we, we look at them in awe, like how do they have these social skills that we don't have? Social skills, by the way, is something that has been growing in importance in the labor market because of automation, apparently. It's something that we're good at. Well, you guys are good at, maybe not me, and compared to machines. Um, so you're absolutely right. And for someone who doesn't have those social skills, risks going down a rabbit hole where they choose an occupation, a job where they can do those things and they, they enjoy it more, but they don't develop themselves and their career prospects are worse as a result. Yeah, this has a lot of policy implications, Michael, and I'm just thinking, um, I mean, you are in education. We think about education as, you know, sort of content and face-to-face -face process uh, education is changing now, right? Content is fed through electronic ways and, and process has taken sort of a backseat in some ways. Um, do you think uh, institutions, education institutions really need to step up and, and really think about if, if the societal transformation is going to happen, um, do you think education institutions have a, a big role to play in it? I hope so. Yeah, I think they do. Um, teaching what we have always strived for, you know, more well-rounded person, um, not just cognitive skills or, you know, good at math and science statistics or good at language and history, but also interpersonal skills, what economists sometimes call social skills, which help them in collaboration and leadership, managing down, managing up, um, and also creativity and innovation. Again, so social skills, right, Michael? I mean, there's a social skill that we sort of think about, you know, in a classroom or, you know, you, you mentioned MBAs. Um, you know, it used to be that in the classroom we interacted with each other and we developed those skills. We still now, do that, by the way. 
Sorry? Classrooms still exist. We're still doing that. <laughs> no, but I'm wondering if, if, if there's a regime change of some sort where electronic means of communication becomes dominant, what would those, you know, there's a, there's a different set of social skills that need to be imparted, right? Um, you know, there are some really good people on Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and everything else. They're pretty good at uh, doing some things uh, electronically, but I don't know these people. I don't know how good they are face to face, <laughs> uh, but it's a different skill set, I think. Yes, or they're, they're just to put it crudely, there's two types of skills and they're disproportionately high on one set and disproportionately low on the other, and a little bit more balance would be helpful. That I'll agree with for sure. Yeah. So, so I want to go into another paper um, for a couple of your colleagues, um, which is, uh, so why working from home will stick? Um, so you say we surveyed 22,500 Americans on, over several ways of, to investigate whether how and why working from home will stick after COVID-19. So let me ask you, so uh, do you think we are really changing as a society because of COVID-19? Yeah, so uh, again, uh, I'd like to give credit to the, the authors of this. Um, I sent you this as a third study. Uh, so this is by Steve Davis, who's a colleague of mine at the University of Chicago, and his collaborators, um, Jose Barrios and Nick Bloom. Um, and what they did is they've, they've run a large-scale survey, about 25,000 U.S. Um, citizens um, about working from home during the pandemic period. Um, so, you know, survey data have their costs and their benefits, but and, um, there are some very interesting results in there. And I, their, their basic punchline is working from home. So you work about 5% of full-time workers worked from home prior to the pandemic. Obviously, it's been much more since, and their estimate is something like 20% to 25% of working, I guess they say working days, will be working from home in the future, which is a very dramatic increase. I don't know if it's going to be so high or not, but I do agree with them um, that it, we're going to see a large increase. And there are several reasons that they cite for that. Um, you know, we, we've, we've experimented and learned from that experiment. The stigma attached to working from home is arguably lower now than it was before. Um, people have made investments in reconfiguring guest bedrooms or something like that and putting computers in their homes and upgrading their internet. Um, Technologies such as Microsoft Teams and Zoom have improved, um, making it a little easier to work from home or much easier and so forth. And then people have experienced the, the work-life balance benefits of being able to work from home if they're if a kid is sick, they can stay at home and then they can work in the evening when the kid is sleeping or something like that. Um, they can help take care of an elderly parent. Um, they reduce their commute time to zero or close to it and so forth. So there are, there are a lot of benefits to working from home. You know, the research that, that I did focuses on the costs, but those are always going to be weighed against the benefits. Yeah, I mean, five to five to twenty-five percent. That is a true transformational change, right? I mean, if if this is if their hypothesis is true, we we are actually living in a different society, a truly different society. Um, personally, I couldn't I couldn't quite understand for twenty-five years why people would sit in an automobile for forty-five minutes uh, to go to some concrete jungle. You know, and sit in meetings for eight hours and then come back and uh, waste another 45 minutes in an automobile. Um, it seems sort of antiquated. So yeah, this sort of fits with the next generation too. Do you, do you have some sense of that, Michael? That Do you think the next generation sort of gravitate toward this concept a lot, lot faster than, you know, than our generation? Oh, yeah. I mean, they've grown up with devices that were born with an iPhone in their hand and and children these days went to school for the last year to some extent um, online, whether they liked it or not. So absolutely, um, we'll see more of it. But again, I still think what we expect to see is hybrid work, not full work from home. People are still going to have to come into an office. They're still going to have to meet with people in person. 
know. Yeah, I think you talk about this in the paper, but there's some economic implications, right? So uh, in the Northeast here, where I am in Connecticut, we saw a lot of movement away from big cities, New York, Boston, into the suburbs for a period of time, but I think it's sort of reverted back now. So I think, I don't know if you eat as your paper or somebody else's paper that I saw sort of the donut, <laughs> donut process that the inner city sort of hold out into the, into the suburbs in terms of activity. Um, do, do we have any evidence that's really happening and in a sustainable way? It's too early to tell whether, what's sustainable. I mean, we're still in a pandemic, unfortunately, although it is much better than it was a year ago in the United States. Um, yeah, it does see people are coming back to the workplace. I'm in my office now, which I hadn't been most of the last 18 months and I'm teaching in a classroom um, with real people. It's amazing. Um, so more of that is happening, but it's it's nowhere near the level that we had pre-pandemic. Um, Steve Davis and his colleagues estimate that something like five to 10% of spending by office workers in core in the inner city cores, such as Chicago's Loop, will, will, there, will there will be decline of about five to 10% of spending, you know, going out to lunch, Paying for parking, um, you know, going to a, a pub with colleagues after work or something like that. Um, that also means um, hybrid models also means we're going to need less office space. Um, you know, so there are some significant questions I, I'd be asking and worrying about if I was an urban planner or a mayor of a dense city. I mean, five to ten percent loss in economics is a big deal for a city, um, and, and I don't know too much about this, Michael, but it, it sort of have a network effect too, right? Um, if five to 10% of the economic activity sort of disappear pretty quickly, um, do you think it will, it will create, I mean, I'm thinking about Chicago, I'm thinking about New York, do you think it will create some real long-term issues for this large cities, San Francisco, for example? If it persists, yeah. It's, it's a little too early to tell, you know. Um, we always have to think about supply and demand and the, the short run versus the long run equilibrium. So for example, if, if fewer people are working in the inner city core, rents in the inner city are gonna fall. And that might motivate others to move in and rent those offices, or it might rent developers to turn those into condos or something like that. Um, so there are always some mitigating factors. Um, so I suspect it's, and in any case, the five to 10% was spending my office workers, which is less than five to 10% of overall economic activity. So it, it's a concern, but it, I'm, I don't know how large it's gonna be. I'm, I'm trying to be an academic and you know say, I don't know here because I don't. I think it's too early to tell, it really is. There are many, many benefits to cities, by the way, and economic benefits. Urban economists talk about agglomeration effects. Having people co-located together physically, not on the Internet, has benefits to things like innovation, um, but many other aspects of society, too. Um, if you live in a dense city, it's easier to find a job that matches your skills well, for example. Although, and Steve Davis would tell me this right away, um, if you're working remotely, then you have the whole planet to look for a job. Um, well, I mean, you have that option, even if you're living in a city, so you have, you know, sort of two options. You can go out point. and meet somebody. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, there, there's other benefits, like you can meet people. You can find, you know, the love of your life. And that's not so easy on the internet. It, yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it's It's definitely a problem for our generation, I think. Uh, it's unclear to me if this is going to be a big problem for the next generation. You know, I think about my daughter, for example. I mean, these kids grew up on electronic communications. Um, you know, their ability to connect with somebody in South Korea is equally robust to, you know, connect with somebody in Chicago, I think. Um, but it's not the case for us, you know. Um, and so there's a transition period. And I wonder if COVID-19 sort of accelerated that <laughs> that transition in some ways. It definitely did, yeah. Yeah. 
So among other about. things, it, it had a profound cultural effect globally because everybody on the planet had a shared dramatic experience with this pandemic, right? Yeah, but those types of things, I don't think last, you know, we, we had, we thought 9-11 was such a shock to us that everybody will come together and we'll be all together. <laughs> and those things last, I think it's like half-life of maybe 18 months. Um, so shocks are good to, to get people together, but I don't think it lasts. I don't know. I don't know how you, how you feel about it. Yeah, that's true. You're right. So some conclusion, Michael, you know, uh, looking at all this work that you have done in terms of the COVID-19 shock, um, sort of remote versus um, office work. So if you look forward five years, we talk about sort of the cultural changes that's happening in the society. Where do you think we will end up? You know, assuming there is no other shock <laughs> behind COVID-19, uh, do you think we sort of will go back to where we started, or do you think this is sort of a permanent structural change in society? I think of it as somewhere in between. Structural change to me feels like a big break from the past. Going back means no break, and I think we, we're going to see evolution. We've started on a path. We've been forced to go further than was optimal. We're pulling back from that now to the extent we're able to as, as the pandemic um, subsides, hopefully forever. Um, but we haven't, we have new tools, we have new capabilities, um, and we will use them to our benefit. And so we will use more remote work, more remote collaboration, more hybrid work. This will have many benefits for say, working parents with children at home or those trying to balance work family in, in, in any other aspect as well. Um, it'll give people a little more flexibility about where they can live and work. Um, it can lower certain kinds of costs for companies, um, office space and things like that. It may allow them to attract different kind of talent, but they have to learn how to adapt their managerial practices to it. But I think we're, we're going to evolve. It's also a competitive question, right? Some companies are going to figure this out really well, as you say, sort of a hybrid uh, structure. Yeah. Some companies are going to persist it. And some companies are going to, you know, jump into it. Um, and we're going to see who is going to really figure it out um, well. <laughs> going to have a competitive advantage, I think. Yeah, so for example, um, I just noticed your logo has a light bulb over your head. Is that intentional? You're always thinking of new ideas? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. PwC, I, as I understand it, announced last week that they're going to 100% remote work, right? Hmm. And I'm grateful to them for doing that because I suspect it's a bad idea, but they're going to conduct an experiment from which we can all learn. So the ones who learn the most may not be those who try it first, but they can observe the experiments and learn from those experiments. The early adopters um, um, often aren't those who make most effective use of new tools. Yeah, and there's going to be a self-selection bias in employees too. This is something that I, I uh, talked about in my book as well, that um, employees are going to self-select to an environment that they feel comfortable in. And so so if, if you get sort of three different buckets, the status quo, go all the way to remote in some sort of hybrid, you also, you also get to get different types of employees in those companies, I think. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and unless you you truly design for them and you you know you you get an employee pool that you would expect, then you have a mismatch <laughs> between your strategy and what you want to accomplish. That's right. Yeah, I guess with PwC, one thing it's worth mentioning is they're spending a lot of time on client sites anyway. For a long time, consulting firms and you know other kinds of professional service firms have had workers who have not spend a lot of time in the office just because they had to go out and meet people. So it may not be such a big shift for them as it would be if all of the University of Chicago went to remote work, for example. Right. Yeah, consulting firms always, 
really set up for this because they, they, there's no reason for to have you know for most consultants to have an office because they never spend any time there. So I always wondered why why do we have this New York you know big building? <laughs> Nobody ever show up uh, because they have the client locations. Um, so yeah, so so I think this will sort of accelerate our those business models to be more efficient, which is probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. Excellent, Michael. Um, yeah, thanks so much for spending time with me. This has been great. My pleasure, Gil. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.